and welcome to Teferit Talk. I'm Gail Brandeis, Editor-in-Chief of Teferit Journal, which seeks to foster peace through literature and art. Our guest today has done such a beautiful job of embodying our mission in her own work, using her writing as a way to raise awareness and compassion and to promote social justice. You may know Leslie Newman from her groundbreaking picture book, Heather Has Two Mommies, or perhaps her novel in poems, October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard, which won the 2013 American Library Association Stonewall Honor, or perhaps her many poetry collections. All in all, as Leah has written over 70 books for readers of all ages in a variety of genres. Her latest books, which we'll be talking about today, are the poetry collections, I Carry My Mother, which was named a 2016 must-read title by the Massachusetts Center for the Book and received the 2016 Golden Crown Literary Society Poetry Award and is such a beautiful, powerful, deeply moving exploration of the death of her mother. And she's also just released a new book of poems earlier this month, Lovely, which is absolutely lovely indeed. It's also a really profound and wide-ranging collection, and I'm very excited to talk with her about both. She has too many awards for me to mention in any sort of timely way, but I do want to note that an astonishing nine of her books have been Lambda Literary Award finalists, which is incredible. And I need to say that I will personally be forever grateful to Lizia, not only for her work, which is so heart-opening and eye-opening, but also because she was the very first person to publish me, at least as an adult, I had published a, a couple of little things as a kid. But this was back in the early 90s. It was before the internet, before email submissions. So we had to send our submissions by mail back in those days. And I had submitted something to an anthology that she was putting together called um, Eating Our Hearts Out, which was an anthology about women and food. And I sent a piece off to her. And it was so exciting because she wrote acceptance right on the envelope. And so before I even opened the envelope to read her acceptance letter, I knew that it had been accepted. And seriously, that was one of the highlights of my writing life, that first acceptance. It was so monumental for me, and she gave that to me. So I want to thank you for that, Liz Leah, and also thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Tavaritog. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so delighted you're here. And... Since I just brought up my first acceptance, I would love to hear how you got your start as a writer and when it was that you first realized that writing was going to be your path in life. Well, I always wrote ever since I was very, very young, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason, I just was very bold um, from the get-go and as a teenager, I read Seventeen magazine, and they published poems by teens. And this is, you know, way back in the 70s. So I thought, well, I'll send some work in. And my first acceptance was some poems in Seventeen magazine, and my editor was Hilary Cosell, mm -hmm. daughter of Howard Cosell, the sportscaster. Oh, you always remember your first oh, editor. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so because I, I lived in New York, she invited me up to the office 
And I remember so oh. clearly I wore a black danskin bodysuit and a flowered mm. skirt, wraparound skirt that I bought in a used clothing store that was once a curtain. It was sort of my Scarlett O'Hara moment and little black cloth Chinese Mary Janes. <laughs> And I went up to, you know, whatever floor it was and got buzzed in. And she took this paper shopping bag and she dumped it out on her desk and papers went everywhere. And she said, this is what I get every day in the mail. And your poem stood out like a shining star. Oh, that's beautiful. And that was so kind of her. I never forgot that. And from I think from that point on, I realized really the most important thing is to be kind to other writers. Um, and, you know, I mm-hmm. hope I have carried her mm-hmm. kindness forward um, for I don't know how many years I'd have to do the math, but many, many years. <laughs> well, you certainly have as far as I'm concerned. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. One of the things I love about your work is its range. You can write the most heartbreaking poems about loss and grief and really horrific things that have happened in the world. But then you also can be so funny in your work and sexy and celebratory. I love how in your new book you celebrate things like stray hairs on the chin or weeds and the the way that weeds are so abundant and full of life. And I I just am curious to know if it's easier for you to write from a place of joy or from a place of sorrow, or if that changes depending upon the season in your life. Well, you know, when I was much younger, I think I wrote more from a place of humor. um, And I think some of that was hiding from deeper feelings. And I think Mm -hmm. now that I am a woman of a certain age. I feel like I have more balance between the sorrow and the joy, you know, which is what life is all about, of course. So I think mm-hmm. when when I'm feeling really, you know, grief-stricken like I was the whole time I wrote the book, I Carry My Mother, I was just compelled to write. The poem was really poured out of me in an unstoppable way, which is the same when I wrote... Um, October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. I I seem to respond to grief Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, The humorous poems also come somewhat easily, but they come in a different way. They don't come like in a series. Um, They're not as sustainable. I think in a way they're almost like filler when I don't know what to write about. You know, something humorous Mm -hmm. might come to my mind. Oh, thank you. And I just want to say how beautifully and powerfully you capture grief. I carry my mother so stunning and I could feel just the immediacy of that grief rising off the page and having written a memoir about my own mother's death I I just connected with it on such a deep level and I was so grateful that you were able to capture grief so profoundly and one thing that I noticed is that you used a lot of formal verse in that collection, a lot of rhyme and form, and that you also um, did a lot of beautiful modeling after poems written by people like Emily Dickinson and Elizabeth Bishop, um, you know Robert Frost, many others who you who you note in here. And I'm curious to know whether 
whether form and and these other poets were a comfort through that grief and whether they carried you the way that you carry your mother in these poems. I, I know that form has been very comforting for me at different times in my life. And, and I would love to hear you talk about your decision to play with form in this collection. I really love writing in form. It's almost like a puzzle in a way because you really have to find <laughs> the right word in terms of the rhyme, the meter, the rhythm. So much goes into it. And of course, if you make one change, the whole thing unravels, you know, like a, a knitted sweater, you know, and then you would you have to <laughs> re-knit my mom was a great knitter, so I, I you know, had those visions of her just kind of ripping out a sleeve and then knitting the whole thing over, which is you know, kind of a great metaphor for revising poetry. I never really thought about that before. Um, but my mom loved yeah. poetry. She wanted to, to be a writer. She never fulfilled that dream for various reasons. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that um, I, that she, you know, I feel like I inherited whatever gift or talent I might have from writing through her, and I gave her back her dream by becoming a writer, so it's a mm-hmm. nice circle. Um, mm-hmm. When my mom got sick, um, which she, she was sick for several years before she died, I, I started grieving, you know, when I knew the end was in sight, and so mm-hmm. I needed some container into in which to pour these really unwieldy feelings, which are so enormous and all over the place, mm-hmm. and form just provided that. And some of the the po- poets that I imitated are poets that my mother really loved. So again, that was a way to give oh. homage to her. Oh, how beautiful. Could you please read a poem from that collection? I would be so happy to do that. Um, you know... There's a lot of sadness in in the collection, so what I'd like to do is read the title poem, which is the last poem, which is is just maybe not as sad as some of the others, um, because it's looking ahead. It's called I Carry My Mother. I carry my mother wherever I go, her belly, her thighs, her plentiful hips, her milky white skin she called this side of snow, the crease of her brow and the plump of her lips. Her belly, her thighs, her plentiful hips, the curl of her hair and her sharp widow's peak, the crease of her brow and the plump of her lips, the hook of her nose and the curve of her cheek. The curl of her hair and her sharp widow's peak, the dark beauty mark to the left of her chin, the hook of her nose and the curve of her cheek, her delicate wrist so impossibly thin. The dark beauty mark to the left of her chin, her deep-set brown eyes that at times appeared black, her delicate wrist so impossibly thin, I stare at the mirror, my mother stares back. Her deep-set brown eyes that at times appeared black, her milky white skin she called this side of snow, I stare at the mirror, my mother stares back, I carry my mother wherever I go. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you so much, and what a treat to hear it in your voice. I am so grateful. Thank you. And one thing I... I've noticed in your work is how often it is so deeply rooted in the body as it is in that poem. And I know that you've written about the body a lot in books like Somebody to Love, where you're just helping guide women back into their own skin. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between writing and the body for you. 
Well, when I write, I sit in my body, and I've been doing that for over <laughs> 60 years. And, you know, my relationship with my body is the oldest relationship I have, and I feel like my relationship with my writing is a close second. So, mm-hmm. you know, those are those are the two things that I've inhabited for pretty much my entire life. And, you know, being a woman in her 60s, I'm watching my body change. I'm watching the different ways that I respond to it, that others respond to it, um, that our culture responds to it. So it's a very interesting journey. And, of course, I watched, well, my grandmother lived to be 99, and she was not Mm -hmm. shy. So it was such an honor to really witness what happens when a body, a human body, is that advanced age. Um, And I watched Mm -hmm. my mom who um, died of cancer, I watched her body change, and my mother and her mother and I all have very similar bodies, body types. We're Mm -hmm. all about the same height. I'm shrinking the way my mother and grandmother did. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of watching this all transpire, and it's very rich material for writing. So... um, Mm -hmm. You know, and to me, writing is a physical act. I write everything in longhand for many drafts before I put it on the computer. So, you know, I'm just very aware of moving my arm, of sitting, of observing uh, while I write. Lovely. Thank you so much. Another thing that I've observed in your work, you have three different poems that are broken into couplets that juxtapose two powerful contrasts with each other. Um, just give you some examples, because you, you know what they are. But um, you have the poem That Night, which is about the shooting in Orlando. And it begins, that night we drank a few shots at the bar. That night we were shot many times at the bar. And then you have a poem, The Coming Storm, that starts outside sheets of rain, inside sheets of satin. So you have these these lovely um, contrasting couplets. And then in your, your collection about your mother, there's the poem Once that starts with Once my mother pushed my stroller, now I push my mother's wheelchair. And it's such an interesting form. I hadn't seen that before. And I was wondering if it's a form you've created, and if so, does it have a name? And also, what pulls you to continue to explore these contrasts in your work? Yeah, you're not the first person who asked me if I've invented this form. I'm not sure. I'm, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever come across it before, but, you know, I very much am rooted not only in the body but in language. So, for example, that the poem mm-hmm. that night, I kept thinking of the word shot. You know, this happened at a bar. Mm. All these people were shot at a bar. People were drinking shots at a bar. So that's kind of what started that poem. And the same thing Mm -hmm. with the coming storm. I thought about sheets of rain and then satin sheets. So, you know, it's funny, but I feel like as a poet... A lot of times I'm never really asked about language, which is really, you know, what Mm. it's all about. So I'm, you know, very um, deliberate in my word choices and sometimes, you know, just thinking about a specific word, you know, will just um, 
make the poem spring up because then, um, mm-hmm. for example, in that night it, it led to other things like a bartender yelling last call while people are making last calls. You mm-hmm. know, and I just started mm-hmm. making a, yeah. a list of just the different ways that these, the different meanings of these words and, and how they talk to each other, you know, like a call and response. Mm-hmm. I also used, yeah. um, wrote some poems in this form in October morning, a song from Matthew Shepard. Um, mm-hmm. One poem from um, Matthew Shepard's point of view and one poem from one of his killer's point of view. So, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, that was interesting to try and inhabit yeah. their voices and use this form to see, you know, what the contradictions were. Yes. Well, since you haven't been asked about language a lot, I just feel like I should ask you, do you have words that you especially love or words that kind of set your hair on end that you that just make you cringe? Well, you know, I love Yiddish words. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Yiddish was mm-hmm. the first language of my grandparents, so I grew up hearing it, not understanding it. Um, you know, my grandparents were fluent. My parents were not fluent, but, of course, knew more than I did. So, you know, just such wonderful words like my mother would always say, oh, you're so fatutsed, you know, which means you're sitting <laughs> around in circles. Um, and then, you know, for clamped, of course, you know, people know. And, you know, some words mm-hmm. that people might not know stem from Yiddish, like klutz. Um, mm-hmm. So... I, I love Yiddish words. There are certain phrases that really rankle me. I don't know about words, but like off of instead of just off, that kind of drives me hmm. wild. <laughs> My students know this. <laughs> I'm really clunky <laughs> adverbs that people never really say when they're talking, but somehow put in their writing like, you know, she effused enthusiastically. I mean, who talks like that? Uh-huh. So, you know, those those are the kind of things that, um, you know, I don't love seeing in a piece of writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, I had this very visceral reaction against certain words with a short A sound, like the hmm. word bladder would just put me into conniptions for some reason. <laughs> That's that my mom would make. Yeah, the, she would make these um, burgers out of lamb that she called lamb patties. And just the word lamb patties, just even though I liked them, this was before I became vegetarian. Um, I, I liked the actual meal, but the word itself would just make my whole body cringe. And it doesn't have as intense um, an effect upon me these days, but I still react to language in such a visceral way. And I love Yiddish too, my grandparents. Um, grew up with Yiddish as their first language as well. So I share your love with Yiddish for sure. And yeah. I also share your love with for Wallace Stevens. I noticed that you model three different poems on his poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. You have 13 Ways of Looking at My Mother, and you have 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackboard, and 13 Ways of Looking at a Poet, which are also wonderful. And I'm wondering what the original Stevens poem means to you and why you find it such a continuing source of inspiration. Well, I love that poem because it's so simple and yet complicated and complex at the same time. So, you know, Wallace Stevens is taking something that is allegedly a simple thing, a blackbird, and looking at it 
in 13 different ways, but he's not only looking at the blackbird, he's looking at himself looking at the blackbird. So, you know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of layers to that poem where, you know, he's learning about something outside himself, he's learning about something inside himself, and then he's learning about the connection between the two. So I find that fascinating, and it's also such a wonderful exercise, yet another tool in a writer's toolbox when I have, you know, no one ever believes this, but it's true, and I've said it so many times because I've written so much, but I have a very hard time coming up with an idea when I finish something, whether Mm -hmm. it's a poem, a novel, a picture book. And so there are some surefire things that will get me going again, even if they don't turn into a successful piece of work. And and one thing is 13 ways of looking at fill-in-the-blank. And sometimes Mm -hmm. what I'll do with this poem or with other poems is I will actually type the poem to just feel what it feels like underneath my fingertips. And so Mm -hmm. when I typed this poem, which not for the first time, I actually made that typo. Instead of Blackbird, I went, I be- went back and read it. I didn't realize I had written Blackboard. And I thought, well, that's oh, my fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of an in-joke, you know, because, of course, most poets know 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. But many oh, people who read my work are not poets, so they don't get that this is like an in-joke, you know, this poem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> Great in-joke. It's uh, wonderful. Uh, one thing that also strikes me about your work is you've always been a writer with such a deep social conscience. And I'm wondering where that comes from in your life. And I also wonder if you've seen your work change at all since the last presidential election and what you think the place of the writer is in today's America. Well, you know, when I was growing up, I was picked on a lot. I was the fat kid, the kid with the frizzy hair, um, you know, the the kid that just didn't look like what somebody was supposed to look like, which was kind of, you know, tall, svelte, blonde, straight hair, little ski-slope nose, um, and I did not fit that image. So I know what it's like to be the brunt of teasing and worse, Um, So I've always had this feeling that I've been given a voice. I don't know why, but I have a voice that um, some people listen to in terms of my work gets out there. So I feel like with that privilege comes responsibility and obligation. Mm -hmm. You know, and I also have always taken very seriously the command that every Jew receives at birth, which is tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. And Mm -hmm. it's assumed that um, one does not do it alone, and it probably will not happen in one's lifetime, but that does not let one off the hook of the responsibility. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, very early on, I, I started really thinking about what I wanted to write about besides myself, which, you know, in early in my career, I was much more focused on myself, which, you know, some of my poems still are, obviously. But, um, for example, when Matthew Shepard was murdered, um, it was this wild coincidence that I was the keynote speaker at the University of Wyoming uh, that mm-hmm. week. And so... I d- if you believe there are coincidences, I'm not sure. But anyway, you know... I couldn't 
not respond in a literary way to that. And Mm the same thing, and actually before that, when Harvey Milk was murdered, I felt compelled to write my short story, A Letter to Harvey Milk. And it just feels like I am moved to give voice to those who have lost their voices to keep their names alive. I just feel like that is Mm -hmm. something that I can attempt to do um, in order to commit tikkun olam, in order to repair the world. Beautiful. Thank you. Could you please share a poem from your new collection, Lovely? Well, I think since we talked about that night, I will read that poem. So this is the poem that I wrote in response to the mass murder inside the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. It's called That Night. Mm -hmm. That night, we drank a few shots at the bar. That night, we were shot many times at the bar. That night, the bartender cried, last call. That night, we frantically made last calls. That night, the music pulsed through our veins. That night, the bullets tore through our veins. That night, we got down and sweated together. That night, we fell down and bled together. That night, the bartender mixed Bloody Marys. That night, the killer fixed Bloody Marys. That night, some of us shared our first kiss. That night, all of us shared our last kiss. That night, we danced in each other's arms. That night, we died in each other's arms. That night turned into a cloud-streaked morning. That night turned into a tear-streaked morning. So powerful. Thank you so much. Yes. The last word, if you were reading the book, you, you would know that the the first morning is spelled like good morning, and the second morning is spelled with a U, as in grief, grieving and mourning. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Oh, so beautiful and so powerful and so necessary. I know that our esteemed producer, R.J. Jeffries, had wanted to jump into the conversation um, to ask a question, and I'd like to invite Jeff to do that now if he still would like to do so. I very much would, Gil. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you uh, brought me on here for this. I'm sitting here still resonating with the poems you just read, Leslie. They're just, they're exquisite. You know, they capture to me the essence of what a poem must, and that's convey commonality of the human spirit, um, what's most important, what most moves us, and to be able to convey them into words and move another, I truly feel is the highest form of poetry is art, and you've done that. I'm, I'm such a fan of your work. And, and on that same vein, um, there are a lot of really good poems out there. In your opinion, and I guess we all have as poets um, our own opinions about what we think works and works for us or resonates, but... There are a lot of good poems. What, in your opinion, separates or sort of differentiates between a good poem and a truly great poem? Well, of course, I could pull out the often quoted Emily Dickinson who said, when I feel like the top of my head has been lifted off, that's when I know it's poetry or something like that. It but is a me, perfect quote, and mm-hmm. I know quote. Yes. So for me, I really have to have like a physical reaction and it, I mean it doesn't necessarily mean you know tears have to be running down my face or I have to laugh out loud but 
It just, my body has to respond to it. And often when I come across a poem that makes me feel that way, I'll read it out loud to really inhabit the poem and let the poem inhabit me. That's wonderful. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. And I would love to hear, Leslie, of what you're working on now and what you have coming up. Well, I'm always writing poems. Um, I'm actually working on a collection of poems about my father who died six weeks ago. Um, which so I started. Funny. Thank you. I started working on the poems um, before he died, so I've kind of put them aside for a little while. Um, but I do have. I just put the finishing touches on a picture book called Gittle's Journey: An Ellis Island Story, which is about um, a family member who came um, from the old country when she was about 11 years old by herself. Um, and she ha- was given a piece of paper with an address um, to give to an immigration officer when she got to America and was instructed to not lose that piece of paper. And when she arrived, mm-hmm. all the ink had worn off on her hand because she had held it so mm-hmm. tightly and it could not be read. So I'm not going to tell you what happened next because you're going to have to read the book. But <laughs> it's a story. It's <laughs> A story I grew up with hearing my whole life, and about three years ago, I decided to attempt to capture it as a picture book, and I'm very grateful that Abrams um, is publishing it, and the illustrations by um, Amy Bates are absolutely beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to read it. It seems like it will be a lovely one to share with my son, my eight-year-old. And it sounds so timely and so necessary, just like so much of your work. And I'm so grateful for your work. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so delighted that we had a chance to speak together today. Thank you again for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to share in your art and your wisdom. And just thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are so welcome. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I'm I'm so glad that you started with um, reminding me of that connection that we had from way back. <laughs> yeah, I'll always yes, be your which, first. <laughs> yes, you will. And I'm so, so grateful for that. It was a wonderful entree into the publishing world. And... Thank you for empowering so many voices and giving space to so many voices and giving voice to so many voices that need to be heard through your own work, including your own. I'm just so, so grateful. Thank you, Oh, Thank you. And all of you can look for some of Leslie's work in a forthcoming issue of Tefera Journal. Our fall-winter issue just came out this month. You can order it online at com. It's a beautiful, beautiful issue. We've moved to our twice-yearly print issue, and you will love holding it in your hand. So all of you out there, please subscribe. Please check us out and look for Leslie's work in the next issue. Until... Our next to fair talk, I am Gail Brandeis. You also heard our marvelous producer, R.J. Jeffries. 
And so now on behalf of Tefer Talk, here's a brief word from Donna Berstein, founder and publisher of Tefer Journal. Thanks again. Hi, this is Donna Bearstein, founder and publisher of Teferit Journal. We first began to publish authors of different faiths and cultural backgrounds in 2004. I had recently been introduced to the word Teferit, which means heart, compassion, and reconciliation of opposites. Thirteen years after the launch of our magazine, our world finds itself perhaps more divisive than ever. Reconciliation of seeming opposites is key. I truly hope you enjoy these new Teferit Talk interviews as much as we do. I hope, too, that you will visit our website at teferitjournal.com to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, participate in our writing retreats and community forums, or donate to our mission of promoting tolerance through literature and art. Thank you so much for listening.